Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, editor at Developmental Medicine, introducing the first podcast of 2012. In it, we're going to be discussing the EACD recommendations for the definition, diagnosis, assessment, and intervention of Developmental Coordination Disorder, or DCD, which is due to be published in the January issue. It will be discussed by Professor Rainer Blank from the University of Heidelberg and by Professor Jan Peek, who is the Professor of Developmental Psychology at the School of Psychology and Speech Pathology, Curtin University, Perth in Australia. Rainer, may we please turn to you to summarize the background. The background why we created these recommendations was that the diagnosis and definition and the treatment of DCD is still quite difficult in practice. There is still lacking an overview of evidence-based recommendations, and that was the reason why the European Academy of Childhood Disability, together also with the German-speaking countries, who initiated actually these guidelines, uh, wanted to create these recommendations. We started at first in Germany and in the German-speaking countries with a first conference, a first international conference, and there were all representatives from all societies, and there we gathered key questions which had to be answered then by evidence-based research in, in the literature and by consensus. And then we included also a European panel for this consensus, which was then done in Brussels. And after that, we wrote down everything and we just published it now. Thank you. Jan, do you want to start uh, discussing the, the article? Yes. Thanks, Rainer. This is, a, I think, a, a major breakthrough in terms of us understanding developmental coordination disorder. I think it's a terrific development. In terms of the diagnostic criteria, it seems really good that the DSM-5 is actually starting to sound very similar to the ICD-10. Yeah. Um, they certainly seem to be becoming more aligned with each other. Can you comment on the diagnostic criteria and whether you feel we are getting closer to a more suitable diagnostic criteria for this disorder? Yes, we actually, in Europe, the legal basis is the ICD-10. And this was actually the, the basis where we started. But the ICD-10 criteria are not operationalized in contrast to the DSM. That's why we tried, let's say, a hybrid of both. Uh, we t took the, the basis of the ICD-10, but used the op operationalized system of the DSM in order to get more transparency and a clearer definition of, of DCD. And from the four criteria of the DCD-4, we used actually two criteria to define more closely the uh, DCD. Yes, I noticed one of the really tricky aspects of the criteria is including intellectual disability. Yes. Um, and I notice you have included it in the criteria. Uh, it has actually been excluded in the DSM-5. Did you want to comment on that? Yes, the problem was we, we discussed that actually very intensively 
where do we set the limit? Where is the sort of clear limit where we say, yes, uh, motor difficulties are due to mental retardation, or motor difficulties are still the leading feature of the child and cannot be explained by mental retardation. And there we have discussed intensively to take a specific IQ point level, but this is left because of different problems. For example, we do not know which test could be a reference, how precise that test, and it's difficult in practice, actually, if every doctor must use an IQ test before he says, yes, that child has a DCD or not. So that was the reason why we said that the judgment should be made on a clinical basis. Uh, that means that if the motor problems cannot be explained by mental retardation, it should be summarized under the R category of the ICD, and if it cannot be explained by mental retardation, it should be diagnosed as DCD. Yes, I think that's an excellent solution, although I believe we'll probably be discussing this issue for many years to come. Yeah. Just in terms of the, um, the process, I notice now that you're including subgroups and children should really be diagnosed with subgroups if they do have specific problems with gross and fine motor dysfunction. I think this is a really important recommendation. With my own research, we know that uh, different aspects of cognitive development and psychosocial development are actually related to particular aspects of motor development, so I find this a really pleasing addition. Perhaps you could comment on that issue in terms of defining them with fine and uh, or growth yeah. motor and how we can go about identifying those. Yes, the process of assessment will be on four levels or four steps. At first, the assessment should, of course, exclude other disorders or health problems explaining the motor of problems. Then, on the second level, it should be looked at the relevance for the activities of daily living. These could be different for gross motor functions and for fine motor functions, but generally there should be a relevance for activities of daily living or participation. And then the third level would be the motor problem should be quantified by a test, by a valid or and standardized test. And then on the fourth level, we then would divide into subgroup of gross motor and fine motor and graphomotor functions according to the ICD-10. There are some tests which have also these dimensions. For example, the MABC2, who has all, which has also fine motor dimension and sort of gross motor dimension with balancing. And there is an area in between, you can say, the ball activities, uh, ball skills, uh, which involves both, perhaps. But there may be a problem still that we need tests which are really <coughs> designed to these subgroups. Up to now, it's more a clinical uh, decision for these subgroups and partly to be supported by tests like the MABC by the subdimensions. The subdimensions are not yet validated, actually. Yes, I think you're very correct there. I think the tools we have at the moment to distinguish these particular subgroups are lacking, 
we make the most of what we've got, but there's certainly lots of research to be uh, carried out in that particular area, that's for sure. Yeah. Moving on in terms of the diagnosis, um, and I know there is a mention that diagnosis can actually occur in children younger than five years of age. Yes. Comment on that, because that's really quite a, an interesting development. Yes. We discussed that also quite a lot, and we then decided to make a sort of diagnosis on a, on a developmental level, let's say. We have seen or we have to notice that the younger the child is, the more difficult it is actually to differentiate between disorder like DCD and a normal variation. This is difficult in highly skilled functions like different fine motor functions. It is impossible to diagnose uh, some disorders or dysfunctions below the age of three years. That's why we said that below the age of three years, there is so much variability and there is so few evidence that this can, that you have really measures which can predict DCD at, for example, the age of two years in later ages that uh, there is no need to diagnose that before the age of three. Then at the age of three to four, we are able to diagnose the DCD, but only if DCD is very severe. And that means that we wanted to establish there a 5% percentile of the motor test. And this should be validated in a second or confirmed in a second measure assessment after two or three months. Uh, and just from the beginning of the fifth year, we start then with a normal or with a definition we made. We took the 15th percentile in addition to the other criteria. So we get at least about 5 to 6% prevalence. Now, there was also another reason why we took out the very young people, uh, the very young children from this definition of DCD, there is not evidence-based treatment in very young children yet. And even in children with three or four years, it's quite difficult to find a treatment uh, which is actually evidence-based. So we still think that uh, we are just in time if we treat DCD with three or four or five years and it is no need to treat a lot of children with two years having not DCD, perhaps. Right, yes, a very good point. And you've also clarified the issue of the 15th centile. That's been a contentious issue for many years, and I know many have recommended the 5th centile, but as you clarified there, the 15th centile would be appropriate provided you ensure that you examine the other criteria and make sure that they're relevant as well. So that's a great clarification there. Mm -hmm. uh, and talking about identification, the issue of screening instruments, uh, another interesting issue that's had lots of interest in terms of publications and research recently. In the recommendations, not recommended that they be used for uh, population-based screening uh, for DCD. Just wondering if you could comment on that, because we really we have very limited tools to do any screening for DCD. Yes. 
we actually examined this very carefully and let's say at the moment the best evaluated questionnaire is the DCDQR from Wilson and studies with the DCDQR tell us that uh, the DCDQR may be very valuable in a clinical setting if you examine children with clinical problems uh, with motor problems, but it's not very sensitive if you use it in a general school population. There you may only identify, let's say, below 30% of the DCD children, and that's, of course, much too low for a screening instrument to being and, and for then uh, for later treatment if you can only identify less than 30% of the children. And that was a clear issue why we did not recommend the DCDQR and other questionnaires for population-based screening. Yes, I guess that raises the big issue of um, how we are going to find these children in a population-based environment. But uh, you're certainly correct there in terms of the screening instruments that we have available now. They aren't very effective in um, identifying um, all of the children, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. The other issue that's discussed quite a bit in the paper is comorbidity, and I'm particularly, we've talked about the, the issue relating to mental retardation, but uh, the other issue there was psychosocial problems, and this is an area that's of particular interest to me, and I guess the one issue was considering severe psychosocial problems and whether you can still do a diagnosis of DCD with that. I guess my issue is how do we know that those severe problems weren't actually caused by the DCD? We, we're a long way from answering that question, but perhaps you could comment on that particular issue in your paper. That is indeed also a very uh, difficult point. I think uh, we recognized, of course, that, for example, uh, frequent comorbidities like ADHD, uh, which is found in about 50% of all DCD children, um, and the other way around, also, if you take uh, ADHD children, they have also 50% DCD. So um, there is an overlap of 50% from both sides. It is quite difficult to test at all, actually. Even if you do a, a normal IQ testing, it may be difficult in ADHD children to find the correct IQ level, actually. So you have the same problem on the cognitive area as well as in the motor area. And we uh, noticed also from the literature and from our practical experience that the MABC has, for example, difficulties to measure DCD in children with ADHD. Of course, if they are not concentrated, they have lower levels, lower uh, performance in balancing and all the other issues in ball skills, etc. So I think there has to be a quite careful psychopathologic or psychodiagnostic process also before from an experienced expert, from a psychologist or a psychiatrist or even from an experienced practitioner to look at these psychosocial problems influencing motor function. And if he is or she is in doubt that uh, these psychosocial problems will influence the motor performance, especially in the test, 
it uh, should be made. For example, you, you can repeat the test as we also recommend this for younger children, or you can start with a part of the test and then continue. And or you treat at first the psychosocial problems, that's for example ADHD, and then uh, retest again. So you have different options actually in order to clarify that. But I have to admit that this is a real difficult question, and we will not answer that at the moment. No, I, I think it's tackled very well in the paper. The other major area of the paper, of course, is in treatment and intervention, and it seems we're still a long way from understanding the appropriate interventions for these children. You point out in the paper that task-oriented interventions still remain the most appropriate. Uh, did you want to make any comment on the area of treatment uh, for these children? Yes, up to now, I think, in general, the evidence base for treatment is not very large and are not very great in DCD. We have also to consider literature from motor treatments in other movement disorders, let's say, and that's why we considered this also in our recommendation that, for example, in cerebral palsy or in other movement disorders, there is now a very good evidence base that all that methods based on motor learning and based on task-specific approaches are much more successful than others. So the, the, they are much more based uh, on, on the evidence at the moment than uh, sort of uh, these other general abilities approach or something like that, like perceptual motor treatment or something like that, sensory integration. So we said there's a general recommendation for this task-specific approach. But looking at the specific approaches, there is still a need for further studies. We mentioned just two approaches at the moment. This is the co-op from Polataiko from Canada and the neuromotor task training, the NTT from Mitz Engelsmann from Netherlands, which are both uh, fairly evidence-based, but still not as so strongly evidence-based as we would like to have them. So we have to say that this is the state of the art, and we are looking forward for the next years for further development. And, of course, a recommendation is not a thing for eternity. It's only a thing for a few years. And then we have to look careful on further research. Yes, that's very true. Uh, and I think we should be looking forward to some really interesting research coming up in that particular area. Thanks very much, Rainer. I have one very quick question, actually, just slightly different from a neurological perspective. Yes. We see children with a motor dyspraxia. And yeah. some of them have DCD. Others, it's technically, I suppose, a mild form of cerebral palsy because it's acquired. And, for example, in children, say, with neural tube defects, they can have an upper limb from, with coordination. It looks like motor dyspraxia. Obviously, the lower limbs will be affected by the neural tube problem. And I find all these, quite, first of all, quite difficult to always classify because they're clearly not all DCD, if I've understood it. Properly. Yes, yes. So that refers clearly to criteria three or 
to the first step of our assessment. At first, we have to start to exclude all the neurological disorders explaining motor problems in everyday life. As you said, DCD is not an acquired problem. It's like, for example, cerebral palsy. And if we find any neurological disease or disorder explaining the motor problems, this should be diagnosed primarily. But if this cerebral palsy, uh, there are very mild forms of cerebral palsy in children who have, in addition, DCD. And these are children which may be missed in, uh, with our criteria because they will be just excluded, uh, as being said, they have cerebral palsy. And so this is an area we have to look further. That means children with very mild cerebral palsy and perhaps severe dyspractic or coordination problems. And we have to sort out whether these children have perhaps both or whether they have, uh, let's say, a psychological problem in addition to the neurological problem. But also the forms of later assessment and management are probably rather similar. They benefit from the same approaches. Yes. yes. The other question, though, was, is there a, as well as a screening questionnaire, is there a screening clinical examination that one could use in a neurology clinic, say, where you haven't got lots of time to decide which children need more assessment? Yeah. I think this is also a very difficult question to answer. Actually, if a child has a problem, if you see a child in the, in the clinic, it has a, a motor problem always. For me, it's most important just to look at the hard clinical signs in order to exclude any kind of neurological uh, disorder that means also reflexes, that means coordination tests, that means uh, a very good history taking in order to look at the process, how the Ill illness, how the disorder developed. And usually, if you take the history and a neurological examination and also an observation of the child during the examination, you can find out quite quickly, if you are quite experienced, whether the child might have a neurological problem or might have a DCD, which has to be examined or assessed more extensively by testing, uh, etc. It certainly raises a, another interesting issue in terms of the etiology of DCD, and there has been some discussion in the literature on whether DCD is actually a mild cerebral palsy, but which cannot be identified. So that again raises another issue that requires considerable more research. But at this stage, we need to, as Rona points out, exclude any neurological problems to the best of our ability. Thank you very much. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Thank you very much indeed for your very interesting discussion. Considering that DCD is the commonest motor disorder of all in children, it's been on a very important issue as well. It's fascinating how for one condition there is so much complexity and so many unanswered questions as well. Just to remind our listeners that the recommendations are being published in the January issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.